Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you thought about the quality of the air you breathe in your home or in your office? If it's been a while, we're here to change that. This is Indoor Air Quality IQ, a podcast from Renew Air, where our goal is to raise your IQ about IAQ. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of IAQ IQ, Indoor Air Quality and You. It's a pleasure having you along for another episode of the show. Today's episode is really, really exciting because we're going to welcome in one of the most unique and interesting guests that we've had here on the podcast thus far. But first, let me introduce to you Nick Agopian. He's the VP of Sales and Marketing at Renew Air. Nick, welcome to another episode of the podcast. Great to talk to you, man. Great. Thanks. Uh, Nice to be here. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. And so join me now in welcoming Paul Raymer to the podcast. He's an author. He's a building scientist. Uh, He just has so much interesting information to share with us today. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tyler. And thank you, Nick. Glad to be here. We are thrilled to have you on today, Paul, and I'm sure the introduction did not actually do you justice uh, because you've done so much just in terms of uh, the books that you've written, the novels that you've written, and we're going to dive into all of that here in the next three episodes here of the podcast. We're going to be discussing things with Paul, talking to him a little bit more about his work, his background, and some of the things that he's accomplished. But but Paul, like I said, you have a, a fascinating background, and, and, and really what you do sits at a really interesting intersection between building science, but also you know writing novels and murder mystery novels and things like things like that. So give us some insight into your building science expertise and how you merge that with your interest in being an author. Well, I'll tell you, I was born in New York City. Uh, my father was a radio and television advertising pioneer working on Madison Avenue. And I had one great grandfather who owned a furniture store in Brooklyn and another great-grandfather who was a newspaper man who worked with Thomas Edison. I got a degree in creative writing from Syracuse University, took a correspondence course in electronics, and spent a couple of years building television sets and underwater acoustic systems before I started my own company. We built microprocessor-based control systems for passive hybrid solar houses, pushing the air around, and eventually I tread on the sensitive toes of one of my customers who wanted to buy my products exclusively. So he sued me and all my customers and nearly took everything I had. Then after a bunch of other twists and turns, I ended up starting another company that allowed me to get a bunch of building science credentials and start teaching. I had learned so much about ventilation that I finally wrote a book about it that was published by McGraw-Hill. And finally, I arrived at where I am today working for ICF and the EPA on their Indoor Air Plus program and teaching and writing novels. It's such a a fascinating background because when I think of people who tend to do creative writing, the the more scientific side almost tends to stay out of it, right? It's almost that that differentiation that we make between left brain and right brain, right? Where science and ventilation and things seems so, um, you know, so one side. And then there's the creative side of being a creative writer that seems so the other side that it seems like you really straddled two worlds in, in a way that not too many people I've ever encountered have done. Well, it's good to be unique. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, I mean, my imagination really helped me develop products. I've 
developed like 25 different product lines. Um, and so, you know, and the thing is, Tyler, too, that because I don't have a degree in engineering, um, I'm not restrained by knowing is enough. <laughs> I, I, I don't know that it can't be done. Sure. I didn't study it. That's a really like, interesting why point. Why do bumblebees fly? You know, they're not supposed to by engineer, so but they do. That's a that's a really, really great point. And and Nick, this is obviously, you know, when it comes to ventilation and, and that side of things, that's obviously something that you know a lot about, as we've covered um quite a bit here on the podcast. When did you become aware of who Paul was, Paul's work and and all of the various things that he's doing in this area? It's really interesting because I feel that uh, Paul's life's work and and everything that I'm doing here at Renew Air were, are like um, uh, railroad um, tracks that were coinciding, going together, and but never met. But somehow or another, we met. And um, ever since then, I find that every time I listen to Paul talk, um, I, my IQ level goes up. Uh, he's got a wealth of information. <laughs> he's got a wealth of information on on the subject, and and truly is a subject matter expert. Um, I serve with him uh, on technical committees. I'm involved um, on everything outside of our financial interests that we have here at Renewware, and more on the uh, standards writing and just improving uh, the society uh, on 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 what can be done. Uh, inside the built environment, particularly homes uh, that can improve life. Um, and of course, when we take ventilation in general, just the term ventilation, um, it's been recognized by all cognizant authorities on the criticality behind uh, everything we're all going through today is, you know, with, with COVID-19, uh, but in general about indoor air quality and, and how that's important. Of course, what we do here at Renew Air with energy recovery um, rationalizes the need without uh, increased energy costs uh, by bringing in this ventilation air, or more importantly, the increased ventilation air above the minimum code um, that um, uh, that builders uh, design and operationalize accordingly to. So I'm super excited to do this podcast with uh, with Paul, and I and I hope you all experience uh, the same thing I do. Well, our, our listeners will have to uh, write us all thank you letters uh, later once we uh, raise their collective IQ as a result of uh, getting a chance to to listen to Paul here on these next three episodes. But but Paul, one of the major things that you write a lot about in your in your mystery novels is the topic of unhealthy homes. So let's talk a little bit about that and, and what that looks like. You've described it as sick building syndrome. Can you break down what that means for us? Tell us what sick building sy syndrome is and why unhealthy homes are such a big player in in so many of your, your novels and your writings? Well, sick building syndrome really came from uh, office workers who uh, they were typically marked by headaches that they got in the office and respiratory problems. Um, and it was factors in the environment that they were working in that, that made it uh, so that they went home at the end of the day unhealthy. Um, and there are so many things that, you know, like carbon monoxide and all the stuff that's coming out of uh, materials like the um, Chinese drywall and the uh, lumber liquidators, flooring materials, um, and all those homes that they built in New Orleans after Katrina, um, which was, you know, they had lots of good intentions, 
but they uh, the occupants complained of all the mold growth and other structural and electrical problems that they had down there. Um, and that's because a lot of the designs didn't take into account, you know, the environment, like um, the the very humid uh, conditions that the houses were being built under. So those are all things that you can put into novels. And so, in a way, in a lot of the a lot of the the writings that you've done, these these unhealthy home elements kind of can play in uh, you know an antagonistic role to some of the characters and that sort of thing. So you, you see the effects of unhealthy homes and unhealthy buildings on the characters throughout the these stories. Well, the the thing that I was thinking about when I first started writing. Um, Death at the Edge of the Diamond was how to use the house as a weapon. So if you knew about all these different things, what could you do that uh, would actually cause the demise of one of the characters? And the interesting thing is that, and Nick, I know you know this so well, it's most of these natural phenomenons are really long-term. I mean, the, the mold growth and all that stuff takes years before, you know, occupants actually get sick. So I had to find something that uh, could actually be manipulated in the short term, which uh, drove me right to uh, carbon monoxide, um, which is, as you know, uh, quite deadly. Um, and most people, it's interesting, Tyler, I think that a lot of people go to the hospital um with flu symptoms or COVID symptoms, and it's really carbon monoxide poisoning. Exactly. I'd like to add something to that. When we look at homes and we address sick building syndrome, what does that exactly mean? Um, you know, your building itself is is, is solid. I mean, it's, it's materials of construction um, that off-gas, but in concert with that, you've got occupants indoors and, and how we use the indoor environment, um, and and I like to depict something. One of the most violent chemical reactions that that I know of that occurs is a solid booster rocket engine uh, that sends the space shuttle up into space. Um, the second you ignite that, um, it becomes very violent and it's very powerful and it's very fast. One of the slowest um, reactions, chemical reactions that occur that's similar to like the rocket engine, which is very violent and very fast, is indoor air. Um, indoor air has a reaction as well. You've got chemicals that are formed uh, because of um, activities indoors. But what's really interesting and also very dangerous is you've got different chemicals that are formed indoors that react with other chemicals that are formed indoors. And then they form what we'll just label as uh, as daughters uh, and, 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 and children of those chemicals that sometimes can be even more hazardous than uh, the, uh, the two original chemicals that you started with. So your home is technically almost like a living environment. And, and, and these chemicals that we don't see, that we don't touch, sometimes we don't smell, uh, have some very adverse impacts and to what Paul was alluding to, aren't immediate. 
And it's the kind of thing where I would say if I was to hold up this glass, how heavy is it? It doesn't seem very heavy and I could take a sip from it. But after maybe an hour of holding it up, does it get heavier? Technically, it doesn't get heavier, but it has an impact on my arm. If I was to hold this up for a day, did it get heavier? No, but the impact on my arm has um, uh, some adverse effects. And, and, and some of these effects to what Paul is alluding to uh, don't um, have an impact immediately. And it's kind of like cigarette smoking. We smoke a cigarette, we kind of feel good. I don't smoke, but apparently you feel good. Um, and there's no immediate impact, but it's that prolonged exposure uh, to cigarette smoking where you end up when you're later on in your life and you have COPD and you're living with disability and then ultimately dying young, that's because of all of those impacts over a, a prolonged period. So um, Paul is so right and spot on that we don't realize what's happening to us until it's too late. And, you know, one of the things that, that has struck me just throughout the course of, of doing this podcast with you, Nick, has been almost this this idea of it seems like this is information that you all have and you're trying to educate the the larger public about this um in addition to to specialized people who who know a lot about ventilation and, and um and talking to them about things but i think for the greater public um people aren't aware people will have will you know maybe in their minds think okay this isn't you know the jungle from upton sinclair from the early 1900s right uh Right, like uh, things are are much better for people now, but are maybe unaware of some of these invisible dangers that exist nowadays that that keep people from being as healthy as they could be, perhaps. Correct, spot on. You know, if we go back to the uh, uh, '60s and 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 '70s and and even '80s, uh, we had uh, building ventilation strategies that were in place um, that you could almost say, well maybe didn't really take into consideration the leaky nature of the structure uh, of those homes. Um, so some of these homes were very leaky. And for the people listening in um, that have gray hair, like, like Paul and I, uh, I remember that you did not want to sit by a window. You did not want to sit by a door because it was very drafty and it was very uncomfortable. And while it wasted energy, while it made us uncomfortable, it ventilated it ventilated the space. Now we say, well, we need to look at energy conservation. We can't allow uncontrolled air to come in for temperature and humidity purposes. Um, that's wasteful energy. So we try to seal up these structures. Well, now we're comfortable. Now we like sitting beside a window because we have beautiful views. But at that point, we've sealed in all of those contaminants that are having those adverse uh, effects on us over a prolonged period to what Paul was alluding to, and then more importantly, have reactions with each other that create other problems um, that impact us uh, uh, as well. Interesting bit of that, Nick, is uh, in New York City in the early part of the 20th century, they put in these massive radiators, steam radiators in the apartments in order to keep it warm when you left those big windows open all winter in order to make sure that it got rid of the pollutants in the apartments. Yeah, so true. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that you said in the in the past, Paul, is that um, examining and working on these homes can be kind of like CSI, right? Crime scene investigators, where you can kind of dig through some of the forensics that exists in these homes to 
determine and to unravel some of the mystery of what happens to people and what causes some of the health issues that we have. How can you look at diagnostic tools and different things along those lines and help maybe unravel and solve some of those mysteries that we've discussed? Well, it, it that's really fascinating too. So now that now you know we got we have ways of fixing the houses, but we have so many cool diagnostic tools now that we didn't have you know not ten years ago. Or and the metagenomic tools are uh, they look at a collective of microbial genome available in DNA collected in the apartment. Um, and essentially, when you take a genetic fingerprint, it doesn't provide information on diversity uh, beyond the selected genes that are being amplified. Metagenomic techniques can actually, uh, it's based on DNA, and it can retrieve the entire a uh, theoretical sample of the community so that when you, you're you using a tool that can actually identify the entire person. Um, and so a good uh, bi uh, genomist, uh, what are they called? Genetic biologist can actually come in and do an analysis of uh, where people and who has actually been in a, in a space. And so then you have the other tools like um, uh, the infrared cameras where you can actually see footprints across a floor. Um, you can see when the dogs walk through. Um, it, uh, interestingly enough, but historically, which I think you'll find, Nick, kind of fascinating, in 1932, uh, do you remember the old closed room mysteries where somebody was killed in a room and there were no doors or windows open and everything was locked? And how did they get in there and kill a guy and then get out again? Well, he wrote a book called uh, The House That Kills. And this guy, Noel Vendry, who wrote the book, they actually used perfume as a tracer gas to find where the openings were in the room. This was back in 1932. <laughs> Wow, tracer gas testing kind of thing. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. That's fantastic, yes. Yeah, and houses have been used as parts of mysteries for years. I mean, if you think about Weathering Heights and the haunting of Hill House and and Manderley uh, in Rebecca. And one, I got to tell you this one, I don't know if you've seen this, but this this book, uh, 17, it's backwards. Is it backwards for you guys? 17 Church, Church Row. Man, you know, you have a, a personal assistant on your phone, right? I mean, you like Siri. Well, in this book, the personal assistant operates everything in the house. It opens the doors, it opens the drawers, and it is connected to the worldwide network. So if it, the personal assistant gets an attitude towards somebody, they can kill them in another place by manipulating <laughs> their the, how their elevator operates, and it's really scary because we're we're actually on the network right now, and so all these personal assistants that are out there, <laughs> pretty dangerous stuff, you know. It's true. We're get, we're getting closer to that, right? Like I can use the Google Home in my kitchen to turn on and off the oven. So. Yeah. 
We're not that we're not that far away from that, right? What if Google Home turned on and off things that would hurt you? I don't like the thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> I better not run afoul of Google anytime soon. Um, there you go. You know? the, the Terminator is not coming, gentlemen. I promise you that. <laughs> but you know, you raise a very good point with regards to um, uh, analytics. If we if we don't know what we don't know we're in trouble and we just live with a degraded environment. Um, and, and these analytical tools today are, are becoming like we, we were addressing IR, uh, infrared cameras are, are becoming mainstream. You can buy yourself an IR camera for a couple of hundred dollars today. And, and I urge people, the listeners to this and, and yourself, Tyler, if you want to have some fun, you can buy that. And you can go take a picture of your house and it'll tell you exactly where you're losing heat. And I could almost guarantee you your, your, your home could in general would be blue, except for your doors and windows that are going to be maybe yellow, but they may be red. And if they're red, it's because they're losing a lot of heat. Or you can take a look at areas. There are sometimes where the insulation has fallen or failed and your wall that should be blue might have a strip of red because the insulation is, is like I say, has either fallen or has uh, failed somehow or another. So diagnostic tools um, are our friends in being able to, 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 to go in and try to identify where the problems are. But more importantly, these diagnostic tools can be used when you're building a home. And, and, and a builder can take a look at this as an inspection tool. Um, finally, some of these diagnostic tools um, can can be installed. I just replaced my home um, system, the entire system. I replaced everything, and they offered me a diagnostic tool called Aware, and I'm able to monitor CO2, CO, VOCs, PM 2.5, uh, PM 10, and it gives me an idea of 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 what's going on within the space. But the beauty about it, and, and I just literally found out an hour before this podcast, that I can link that to my um, to my systems app. And if uh, the diagnostic tool realizes that there's an adverse situation, whatever it may be, I'm I burnt toast, or or uh, I may have a high concentration of something like CO2 as an example. Well, it'll manipulate the HVAC system not because of thermal conditioning, but because of indoor air quality conditioning and either increase the amount of outdoor air or minimally, even if it's not calling for heating or cooling, just turn the fan on so it could filter the air. Let's say PM 2.5 is too high and I have a MERV 13 filter. It could filter the air uh, in order to bring it back down to acceptable indoor air quality. So the diagnostic tools that Paul's alluding to are going to become paramount because of the fact we don't know what we don't know, and we need to know that. And these tools are going to be able to help us do that. I, I just want to interject one thing there, Nick, is um, like anything else, the, what you know about how to use the tool is really important too. Excellent point. I am so concerned with people getting infrared cameras and then thinking they're seeing through the wall when actually all they're seeing is the surface temperature. And infrared cameras are just wonderful snake oil 
um, tools too for the sleazy contractor who comes in and says, oh my gosh, you've got this big water leak in your ceiling. Uh, <laughs> I've got to replace everything because it's all right. orange, you know? Right. So knowing what they are and what the relative differences in temperature is, is really important. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been uh, a really incredible conversation just to kick off our, our three-part episode series here with Paul today. Um, guys, any any final thoughts, anything you want to say to wrap up this episode before we sign off? Paul, uh, I'll kick it over to you first. Well, I think, I think what I'd like to do is I'd like to suggest that people think about the books they've read and think about how houses, what roles houses play in all the books that they're reading. That's a, that's a great point. This is also a good opportunity to plug maybe um, where people can learn more about your books and, and some of the things that you've worked on. Is there a good website or place that people can go to, to learn more about that? Sure. Uh, my website is uh, saltyairpublishing.com. Um, so all the books are there and, and signing up for my newsletter is there as well. Good stuff. Salty Air Publishing. There you go. Uh, make sure to give that a search and learn more about Paul. Uh, Nick, any final thoughts? Any uh, any last words for this episode? Well, once again, as I said earlier, the indoor environment is, is a complex um, scenario of particulates and gases. Uh, you can have two gases coming together that make a submicron particle. So it's 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 fairly complex. And and I think uh, it's 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 critical that we uh, try to identify what the problem is um, and then determine a um, uh, a method to uh, try to address the problem, not only for this one situation, but a way in a way that's sustainable. Um, because at the end of the day, um, the indoor environment is not static um, and it's not just a flash in a frying pan. Uh, because we've done so well in low emitting uh, products, meaning products that have uh, low VOCs or whatever the case may be, at the end of the day, our activities indoors are going to assure us that the indoor environment is going to remain complex. And when we have situations like uh, COVID-19, where we're using increased cleaning compounds, we just further compound the problem. So looking at sustainable strategies in order to control the indoor environment becomes very critical, which we'll touch on later on in episode two and episode three. Absolutely. For the audience out there, make sure to tune into the second part of our conversation uh, that is coming up next, where we're talking about sizing and designing ventilation systems. So you don't want to miss that conversation that is coming up in part two. But for this one, for Nick Agopian and Paul Raymer, guys, thank you so much for, for joining us for this first episode of, uh, of this series. Thanks so much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And everyone, we will see you at episode two. Don't go anywhere. Make sure to go check out the second episode in this series. But for this one, for my guests, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. We'll talk to you on the other side.